got you worried this morning? No worries? Nothing got you anxious? Not worried about your family or your kids, your money, your health? Let me ask you this. Did you leave the stove on at home? Is your garage door still open? Did you forget your two-year-old and leave him home alone? We're uh, talking about overcoming anxiety today, and we all deal with it. So let me give you a little help. Lyrics from a song. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. In every life we have some trouble. When you worry, you make a double. Don't worry, be happy. And there's lots of ooze that go on and on. Yeah, I could have the drummer do a little calypso, but we won't get to do that. Actually, if you need a little bit deeper lyrics, I think we've mentioned this song before as well. And I'll be speaking in tongues, but I'll give the translation so it's okay. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> what a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata. Ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. Thank you, Tim and Pumbaa. While some of our fears and anxieties might be minor enough to be relieved easily, many of them are pretty deeply entrenched in our hearts. Fear and anxiety go together, don't they? Fear is the dread of the danger or the bad thing, and anxiety is the emotional preoccupation with those fears as if they were already happening. Charlie Brown said, I have a new philosophy. I only worry about one day at a time. I only dread one day at a time. So he was making progress with that. There are various phobias. Maybe yours is calrophobia. It's fear of clowns. You might have lepidopterophobia, which is fear of butterflies. Or it's possible you have chiclophobia, which is fear of chewing gum. There are actually a couple different terms for fear of sharks. Galeophobia and salacophobia. This is shark week or month, isn't it? To my knowledge, there's not yet a name for fear of sharknadoes. <laughs> and if you missed that fantastic show on TV, you were very blessed. Well, seriously, what are you anxious about? Especially regularly? Anxiety can be very debilitating, and some of us deal with it very seriously. So we need Paul to help us out, the apostle. We'll pray, and then we'll get into the scripture from Philippians chapter 4. Father, we want to learn how to overcome anxiety through Christ. Help us, Father. Make your word clear and helpful to us. By your spirit, strengthen us. 
give us what you want us to have today in growing and knowing Christ and how he can give us peace in the midst of anxiety. In his name, amen. So we'll look at Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. This is Philippians 4, 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. To overcome anxiety involves, for one thing, rejoicing. The Philippian church was experiencing opposition and suffering, which brings anxiety as Christians in the Roman Empire. And still, Paul calls them to rejoice. He could do that because he rejoiced much, and he wrote a lot about his rejoicing in the Lord, even though he himself was under much persecution and hardship. So he calls him to rejoice, not merely by putting on a false emotional front or just pretending everything is peachy or just looking on the bright side of things. He calls them to rejoice in the Lord. The more we know the Lord Jesus, the more we will be able to rejoice in the Lord. Paul set the bar high in this letter for knowing Christ. Because he's, he says things such as, to me, to live is Christ. And I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul was all about Christ as his everything. Paul knew that because of Christ's redeeming suffering and death and resurrection for us, that none of his own sufferings were worthless and, and ruinous to him. Paul didn't have a victim mindset when he was suffering even though he was in prison when he wrote this letter in a Roman prison. He interpreted everything in his life through the filter of Christ. You can see how rejoicing in the Lord is the only way you can rejoice always, really. In the Lord alone can we always rejoice. So, Paul, are you serious about rejoicing always? That's pretty serious joy, isn't it? Paul says, well, if you didn't hear me the first time, again I say rejoice. So he repeats it. When facing the problems of life, whether big or small, you will either be anxious or you can rejoice in the Lord. Those two don't hang out in your heart at the same time. You can flip in and out of them, but they, they're not there at the same time. Rejoicing in the Lord doesn't always mean you never feel sad 
or angry or frustrated or fearful. It doesn't mean going into denial and just pretending everything is great. What it means is not remaining emotionally oppressed or anxious under your circumstances so that you lose sight of hope in the Lord. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 12, 12 that we are to rejoice in hope. The reality of being God's people in this world is that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Sorrow can be a right response. He doesn't say, don't sorrow, but he does say, don't be anxious. So he doesn't say anxious but always rejoicing, but he, he says we can be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. So rejoicing in the Lord always is one way we overcome or displace anxiety. In verse 5, he moves on to another way to overcome anxiety, and it's to exhibit gentleness or reasonableness or graciousness to all people. This means exercising gentle forbearance toward all people, being a peacemaker rather than a troublemaker, or always not being in the midst of always emotional turmoil. It doesn't mean you're not passionate or that you are just passively enduring things. It means that you're stable, not given to retaliation or ready to go off or come apart. And it means you're not driven by a self-serving agenda because where you're always defending yourself, protecting yourself, that produces anxiety. If you're regularly in emotional turmoil because you easily take offense or things don't go your way, you, you will be anxious. Then Paul makes a statement, and it's kind of, it, it could mean several things. He says, the Lord is near. This is still in verse 5. It could mean, it could refer to what he just said, let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to all people because the Lord is near, or it could refer to what follows. Uh, the Lord is near, therefore don't be anxious. It could be referring to both of those. And the Lord is near itself could mean that the Lord is present, or sometimes that phrase refers to the Lord is near to returning, which in Bible times, that could be true because Jesus said at the end of Revelation, behold, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly, and we're at the 2,000-year mark. So either way, when you're in the midst of persecution, as this church was, it's comforting to know that the true Lord will be coming soon and or that he's near and he's present with you. He's not just sitting back with his arms crossed watching you squirm in your anxiety. The Lord is near as a strong encouragement not to be anxious for anything. It says in Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth, which leads us to what he says in verse 6. In verse 6, he really gets after the, specifically the concept of not being anxious. The word anxious or worry means to have an anxious concern based upon anticipation or apprehension about possible danger or misfortune. The verb, okay, here's your Greek lesson for the day. The verb is merimnao. It comes from the noun merimna. And it's a word that sounds like what it means. So, Try that. Yeah. So, okay, once again, really, Paul, I'm not to be anxious about anything or literally be anxious for nothing whatsoever. Really? What about my sickness? 
Yeah, me, what about my sickness? Several of you have sicknesses and health struggles that you're struggling with as well, so not to be anxious about that. What about my financial crisis? What about my marriage? My marriage is intact, I think. Let me check. Yeah, we're still good? Okay, Just checking. Just check. What about my children? What about tough decisions I have to make? I, I do need to tell you that there's another phobia that I, this is a real choice one, I forgot to mention this. And it's the dreaded phobia called arachabuterophobia which is the fear of peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of your mouth. So if that's a burden for you this morning, then come up for prayer at the end. What Paul is saying is that when you find yourself becoming anxious, don't just let your anxiety ramp up and take a life of its own. Instead, rather pray to God in everything. Many times people will say or think, where is God in all my anxieties and my worries? Paul says, well, he's waiting for you to let your request be made known to him in prayer and supplication. P petition, pleading, that word supplication just literally means to plead. So, I don't like working on my decks I feel like there's better things to do. It's tedious work. So I get anxious over it, and I'm sitting there being cross, complaining and grumbling to myself. Where is God in all this deck work? Woe be to the man who invented cedar decks. Such a person should not be allowed to live. And as I was thinking along those lines... This was just this week, and I knew I had this text coming up. I thought, I'm not doing this verse. So I grunted out some prayer, and so I, I made good on it, but it wasn't pretty. And don't come look at my front deck. <laughs> it's not that we're to deny or pretend that we're not anxious when we are. The answer in overcoming anxiety is not that we let go of desire like the answer of Buddhism is. Just don't desire. Just re recognize you're not an individual self anyway and, you, and you're absorbed into all, all the great oneness that is. And suffering's just an illusion. That's not the answer. No, you cry, you, you cry out to God. You, you plead with Him. You, you trust in Him at all times, as the psalm writer says in Psalm 62. You pour out your heart before him. You convert freaking out energy to crying out to God energy. So many of the Psalms are written out of anxiety. The Apostle Peter says it this way, cast all your anxieties upon God because he cares for you. So I have to ask the question, what do my anxieties and worries say about my view of God? Do I believe God is good and willing to provide what, what I need? What do I so value that I'm anxious about not getting or, or anxious about losing? 
do I believe he cares for me? How can you possibly let your request be made known to God in everything with thanksgiving? He did have to add that. Even the hard things. Don't forget to thank him for the good things. Thanksgiving is supposed to be a way of life for us. We need reminding. But thanking God when you're suffering and in trials is when you need God's word as your truth anchor. You've got to know your Bibles well enough to know how to think about what to thank God for when you're anxious. You don't think clearly. So you, you desperately need the word to, to give you clear thinking. How do I thank God? Well, for one thing, you thank God that you belong to him through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. It's the best thing we have going for us. You thank God that he's working good in your life through this trial. You know the Bible says that he's doing that. It's maybe not comforting at the moment, but he's producing in you endurance, proven character and hope. It says in Romans 5, James 1, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's producing in you steadfastness. So he's doing those things. There's all kinds of promises about the future, the certainty of our future hope. The sufferings of this age are not worth comparing to, this, to the, the glories that are to follow, it says in Romans 8. And Romans 8, it also says he's conforming us to the likeness of Christ. So worry and anxiety live in the future. And so as long as you're going to the future, bring the light of the scripture hope in, in the future. He's doing a good work in your life now, and he's certainly preparing you for glory. And he really is using your sufferings to produce Christ-likeness for glory. How hazardous is anxiety and worry to your spiritual health? When Jesus is explaining the meaning of the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils where he talks about scattering seed and the seed is the word of God and the seed falls in different types of soil and one type of soil is the thorny soil. And he says the thorns represent the cares of this world which choke out the word so that it's unfruitful. So how much of God's, the work of God's word in my life is being choked out by the cares and anxieties of this world? So how does praying to God in everything instead of being anxious about anything help me to overcome anxiety? Is it kind of like a meditation technique that this helps me to feel better? takes us to verse 7 where Paul gives us this amazing promise. Paul has said that we are not to be anxious about anything, but instead we should pray to God in everything. And that in that everything, not just the small things, God-given peace will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That word was of a military garrison. God will set up like a military garrison around your heart and mind in Christ. And they, the Philippians had an immediate a picture of that because they had a Roman military garrison there in Philippi. So that image was very powerful to them. This peace that God gives surpasses or it transcends all understanding. That means it transcends our merely human, unbelieving way of thinking. It means God's peace comes regardless of how else he does or doesn't answer prayer. In other words... Bring all your requests to God, and he, as we know how he responds to prayer, sometimes he gives us the answer right away, 
Sometimes it's different, sometimes it's postponed, sometimes it's not at all in this life. So however he chooses to answer the prayer, you can't explain the peace that you get from God by the fact, well, you just got the answer to your prayer, so of course you got peace. Well, you might, but the peace is the one certain thing that God promises to give you when you seek him in prayer. So it's not just about getting answers to your prayer. It's about getting peace from God in the midst of your anxiety. That, that is a witness to the free grace of God gifting you with peace when it doesn't make sense to human wisdom. And it comes to us in Christ. It's, it's a peace that is in our relationship with Christ. God is all about us growing and knowing and trusting in Christ. It's not just a calm that comes over us. It's an in Christ kind of peace, a strong peace that is Jesus' power, Jesus-shaped. When Jesus' disciples were freaking out about his leaving them, he promised he would send the Holy Spirit, and he said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you, not just worldly means of calming yourself down and, and having no anxiety. But he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God is not teaching us to be self-sufficient in overcoming anxiety. He's not saying, look inside yourself and just talk yourself down. He's trying to, to lead us to be Christ-dependent, not self-dependent, but Christ-dependent. As sure as this promise is that God gives us that when we pray, he will give us peace in Christ to overcome anxiety, Paul calls us to do more than pray, to overcome being anxious. Before we go there, if Geneva, are you still awake? Can you come up and share with us how God has fulfilled this promise in your life lately? Okay, he said I had two or three minutes. Um, you know, I went through this trial for over a month, so two or three minutes is a short period of time, but I want to share some of the things that God God did. Um, six reasons for my peace. Um, the first two deal with Cloyce and I's re um, relationship with the Lord. Um, knowing that we both knew that um, when our time was up in this life that we had a better place to go um, gave us a whole different perspective on death than what a lot of people have today um, and I think going into this experience if we hadn't had that it would have been a totally different experience um, I knew that no matter what God's decision was that he would do what was best for Cloyce um, and I knew that if he took him from me that he would be in a better place and I had to be willing to go there um, God's word played an important part prayer absolutely um, and God's people God's people became his hands and feet his hands and feet to me in a real way during that time and music I love music I love the message of music the words um, and um, on April 29th we took Cloyce into urgency care and from there he went to the ER on May 1st, he was placed on life support. On that day, I made my first post on Facebook, and I said, please pray. We're in a crisis. Um, 
and the community that I had established on Facebook at that point in time, I did not realize how important they were going to be to me in the, in the next six weeks. Um, one thing that happened that very day is because of that post, Debbie Schmaltz came and gave me the biggest hug in the world when that was all that held me up for a while. Um, and I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, May 2nd and 3rd, we were really in crisis. Um, the doctors said everything kept going downhill. If things didn't turn around, they were talking about um, dialysis and they were talking about other measures. And we had already had the discussion that um, I knew what Clois would want and there were certain things that he wouldn't want. And I had to make the decision, God, if this is your will, you can take him. If not, heal him. And on that day, um, I have to step back a minute. During this time, Clois and I had been reading the Bible together. And I had determined that while he was in the hospital, even though he lay there unconscious, that we were going to continue our daily Bible reading. And so each day I would go in by his bed and I would read our reading for the day. It just so happened that a lot of those days God had us in the psalm, which, as you know, that's one of the best places to be when you're struggling. On those particular days when we were in crisis, God took me to Psalm 107. In Psalm 107, the people of Israel are struggling, and four times in that chapter it says, and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them in their distress. For he satisfies the thirsty, and he fills the hungry with good things. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. And they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. I don't think God gave me those verses um, just because. He knew that I needed that. I needed to know that I needed to continue to cry out to him, and he would supply what I needed. On the way to the hospital, now... I'm just going to take you through a little timeline of some of the things that God did for me. Um, this doesn't cover it all by any means because you have to remember that every single day I was going through this. And so I'm only picking out some of the choices ones just to show you how God responded to me. Um, my routine would be that I would come home in the evening and I would usually do an update on Facebook for all my prayer warriors so they knew where we were. And my solace that night before I went to bed was I would have anywhere from 15 to 50 responses almost immediately saying, thank you for updating me, we're praying, we're praying, we're praying. That's what got me through the nights. Um, on May the 6th, on the way to the hospital, God gave me a little song that I learned when I was probably back in, I don't know if I was in um, vacation Bible school or just a youngster in, in uh, church but it's called He Owns the Cattle on a Thousand Hills. I don't know if any of you know it, but hear the words. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mile, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. He is my father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that he will care for me. That was my message on the way to the hospital that morning. And at the same time, the words of another song ran through my mind called, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. That song goes like this. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. 
I don't worry or the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. These are the way that God ministered to me during this time. Um, then on May the 7th, one of the Facebook posts that I came across was called Hugging is Good Medicine. It said, Hugging transfers energy and gives the person being hugged an emotional lift. Scientists say that hugging is a form of communication because it can say things that you don't have words for. And the nicest thing about a hug is that you usually can't give one without getting one. I have to tell you, those hugs kept me going week after week, day after day. When the word went out to my home care group that I was struggling, when Cloyce first, I have to tell you, when Cloyce first went in, he's, he's a private guy. He didn't want visitors. He just kind of wanted to be left alone. Well, that was okay for the first few days. When it was me trying to stand there and do this on my own, I needed hugs. I needed my family. And I made one call to one of my gals in my home group. She made the calls to the rest of them, and my family surrounded me. Every single day in that hospital, I had somebody there to give me a hug, to just sit with me, to encourage me, to pray with me. That's what being the hands and feet of God is all about. Um, and then they, as they began to try and wake Cloyce up, I saw this Facebook about healing, about our healing from ourhealingmoments.com called A Deeper Understanding of Resting in the Lord. That was kind of a long time. There were several days there that we didn't know if he was going to wake up or not. But that devotion on learning how to rest in the Lord was the thing that kind of kept me focused. And then on May the 14th, the devotional from our daily prayer reading entitled, Why I Pray, says, uh, John 5:14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And Norman Vincent Peale says, Prayer is a means of bringing you to a point where you accept what God wants. That's where I was. I really wanted what God wanted. I wanted what was best during this whole situation. And then a friend shared the following on Facebook. God never sends you into a situation alone. He goes before you, he stands beside you, and he walks behind you. Whatever situation you have right now, be confident that God is with you. You see the pattern in all this? God just, he's speaking through my friends, my family, Facebook. You know, a lot of things can be said about Facebook, but you know, if you have the right people on Facebook, if your friends are the friends that the kind that encourage and don't bring you down, that pray for you when you need prayer, um, God can even use Facebook. He did for me. Um, and then I was reminded of the words of the song, Be Still My Soul. Be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Those, those thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. 
Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. And then the last thing I want to share is on May 24th, Cloyce had been transferred to intermediate care from ICU, and we thought that the worst was over, and he was on his way out the door soon, and that's when he had the bleed. And this was the second time, I believe, that God really reached in and touched his life and returned him to me because um, the next morning they took him in for exploratory surgery to find out why the bleed, and there was no bleed. There was no reason why he had the bleed. God had taken care of it. Um, but that morning, um, when I went on Facebook to tell people to pray because we were in crisis again, God gave me a familiar verse for this morning, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. So when Pastor asked me to share this morning, um, I didn't really know what I was going to say. I had to sit down and try and gather my thoughts and get some things. And then I just saw God had put it all together. I mean, even to the verse that he was going to be preaching on this morning, that was the verse that had ministered to me right there at the last one I needed it. Um, and I just want to say, um, you know, God's real. God's alive. Um, he uses things in our lives. And I think, you know, there have been times that I thought, you know, I don't know my, my Bible well enough. But, you know, if you spend time in God's Word, you may not know where that verse is. But if you know that verse, God brings it back to you when you need it. There were many, many verses that he brought to my mind during this time that I maybe had to go home that night and look them up and find out where they were, but I knew they were there. And so um, stay in the Word. Pray. When God prompts you to do something, do it. Be like Debbie. She came to the hospital and said, I don't know why, but God told me to get here. <laughs> And I needed her that day. So listen to the Lord. Listen to his promptings. And just know that um, you may be the one that helps bring peace into that life when they need it. Um, but God uses people. Thank you, Geneva, for enriching our study and for sharing out of the abundance of the grace that you received in that whole process. So as you listen to Geneva, you recognize that there was lots of prayer. And it's a group project. It's not meant to be done alone. And it's a community uh, effort to pray for one another. Crises like this bring it more to the forefront. And also from Geneva, what you heard is it wasn't just prayer, it was the word of God. And so in verse 8, Paul talks about um, how to live a lifestyle that's peace-oriented. In verse 8 and 9, verse 8 is how to think, and verse 9 is how to live. And Paul says in verse 8 that we're to keep thinking, keep reasoning, keep focusing on whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So so God frees us from anxiety when we're in the crisis times in order to um, lead us in ways that are living a, a lifestyle of peace that are founded on how we think and how we live. This is really hard thinking this way because for one thing it takes, I need to warn you, I'm going to use a, a dirty word, discipline. Sorry. It takes discipline 
to discipline your mind to think these, uh, set your mind on these things. Uh, while we can't control all of, our, all of our circumstances in which we may become anxious, we can control how we focus our thinking. It's simple. You just have to be vigilant all your waking hours to resist and reject letting your mind fixate on whatever is not true, honorable, just, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, and constantly fixate and refresh your mind or be renewed in your mind on whatever is true and honorable and so on. I, I have some people in my life, and maybe you do too, that constantly run in negative ruts, and it's like, if you're around them, and you get anywhere near the orbit of the subjects they like to complain about, then off they go. And so I don't want to be that way myself. And so it, it's rooted and grounded in, are you thinking on setting your mind on whatever is true, of worthy of praise, and lovely and excellent? How do we know what's true and, and honorable and right and, and pure and so on? Well, you, you get from the Word. So, for example, I'll never overcome this sin. I should just give up is false. What is true is in Christ I am dead to sin and alive to God, so I must not let sin reign in my life, for sin shall have no dominion over me. As much as we are responsible and able through God's Spirit to reject thinking patterns that are not true and honorable and worthy of praise, we have to point out what we all know, the influences to not keeping our thought life set on what God says is excellent and praiseworthy are strong. And you know the culprits. Besides out of our own past and our own corrupt imaginations, uh, we have help from television, internet, smartphones, so much of academia, people with whom we work, movies, YouTube, news, media, advertising bombard us with so much that is not true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, or commendable. We know that. And so we can't avoid all of that. Um, we can't avoid all exposure to things that are false, dishonorable, wrong, impure, vile, gross, worthless, and unmentionable. But we need to be discerning and vigilant as to what we allow ourselves to be exposed to, right? Just like good nutrition, you may not be able to avoid all added sugars and chemicals, bad fats and cholesterols, GMOs, pesticides, and other unhealthy elements, but you can discipline your diet so that you're minimizing foods ending in Eidos. that have added sugars and all the other bad stuff and maximize whatever's truly nutritious, healthy, and worthy of eating. Train yourself to enjoy what is good. Except for Brussels sprouts. Hard, hard time redeeming those. Maybe some of you love Brussels sprouts. You've got a great recipe. But I'll tell you, at the Smith's house, if we miss one day with, with desserts, it's bad news. So we have some guilty pleasures in our diet. Eat your vegetables. It's not enough to, the lettuce on the McDonald's burger doesn't count as your vegetable helping for the day. Well, Paul closes in verse 9, this section, and it's what we talked about. You don't have to try to overcome our anxieties alone. You're not supposed to. Christ has saved us into a body, into his church, into his community of, of, of believers. And that's where we share in bearing one another's burdens, um, learning from one another, now, true, the Philippian church had the advantage of having the Apostle Paul, who was one of the foundational teachers for Christ's church, but, but Paul was still just a man. And did you face anxiety, Paul? Yeah, he did. If anyone had reason to be overwhelmed by anxiety rather than by overcoming anxiety, the Apostle Paul had reasons. 
He had been in prison many times and was now in prison in Rome, facing possible ex execution. He had been constantly pursued by his enemies. He had been whipped five times with 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, shipwrecked three times, suffered all the hardships of weather, robbers and sleeplessness that came with travel in those days, often without food. He had to confront false teachers and false teaching constantly. And in one verse, he says, and apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. It's like, worse than all of that was the anxiety over the churches. So churches are anxiety-producing things. But not, not this church. It's all very pleasant. For the most part. How did Paul teach and model to overcome anxiety? It's what, he, it's what this passage says. Rejoicing always in the Lord. Letting your reasonableness be evident to all to not be anxious about anything, but to pray with thanksgiving to God in everything. And Paul's thinking was fixed on whatever is true, honorable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And all of this he modeled from a heart and faith that said, for me to live as Christ, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I don't care what happens to me. And he, his desire was that I may know him. And the promise is the, the peace, the God who gives peace in the midst of anxiety as we pray and seek him, is the God of peace who will be with us as we set our minds on these things and we practice these things because we're saturating our minds with the elements of his word that make for peace and we're putting them into practice. So that's God's goal for us is not just to be crisis-oriented, get me out of anxiety. It's to lead us in a, a lifestyle of peace that's based upon setting our minds on whatever's true and excellent and worthy of praise and practicing things that, that God says to do in his word pray with you. Father, we thank you that you do give us peace in the midst of anxiety as we follow your word, as we cry out to you, that our requests be made known to you, as we pour out our hearts before you. In Christ, we're seeking who Christ is for us, all that he is for us. He promised us to be a strong peace for us. Our future is certain. Life gets messy. We want Jesus to be very real and near to us. We promise he's near to us as we call upon his name. So, Father, may we be a people who set our minds on things that are true and honorable. May we be a people who pour out our hearts before you in the midst of our anxieties. May we be a people with whom you, the God of peace, is very obviously near to us. In Christ's name we ask.